the Pirates franchise has nabbed Margot Robbie. I don't know why I say their name like Robbie. <laughs> I'll start that again. You can. Start, go. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 26 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and talking of film geeks, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. How have we been, Andy? Are we still, uh, we're still imprisoned like some sort of Count of Monte Cristo character in your Andy Towers, the Meakin, uh, the Meakin Fortress? It's, it's less a fortress and towers and more just like a sad little dungeon on a swamp. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty much same old, same old. Um, I think as I think we should just move straight on with the news because the reason why it's same old, same old, and the news will start this week with, guess what? Cinemas aren't going to be opening this month. Yes, well, so I heard, and I've I've only just heard this one. Um, it, it just cropped up just a few minutes before we started. Now we were under the impression that cinemas were going to open in the next uh, couple of weeks, but. From what I know, down to the restrictions and the ease up, that they're not going to be open now till is it the thirty first of July? Yep, uh, and that that's it's only Cineworld and AMC who have announced an actual date at this point in time. We said when they were announcing dates a couple of weeks ago that our our cinema chain is holding back until it gets closer before we announce anything, and this is the reason why, because nothing can be certain at this point in time. And the reason why the move has got to compl- taken place, Cineworld statement today on their social media channels says that it's due to health concerns, etc., etc., reducing the risk. No, it's because Tenet is August the 12th, because that's moved again, and Mulan is August the 24th. There is nothing coming out in July. Even showing classic films will not generate enough business to make it financially viable to open. Which makes absolute sense. I mean, it's it's hugely disappointing. I mean, ultimately, it should be down to the to the fact of, of, of people's safety. Um, and the second part of that is, is finance. And then the third part of that, you've got to have something to show. I mean, not everybody's yeah. going to rush back. And I know it's been muted to being shown that Empire Strikes Back is going back into the cinema. But that's not enough to, to, to pull back an audience. And I, I think if you're listening to this in the US, you've got a completely different story. But in the UK, there is a kind of... Uh, grand reopening uh, this coming uh, Saturday, which is uh, July the 4th, July the 4th weekend. And no one knows what's kind of going going to happen after that or because of that. And um, there's a lot of beta, Beth and trepidation. Some people think that the world's going to turn back to normal. Personally, I'm not one of those people. I'd like to be more enthusiastic about that, but I just can't. So there. Well, even today, the town of Leicester, Leicester has uh, shut down again. Yes. So... An actual town has gone full into full lockdown because they're doing as localized lockdowns if the if the pandemic grows in that area. So it, we're not out of the woods. I do think that's a good idea. The smaller communities that are fine and haven't got any signs of it, then why should they be restricted back from getting on with normal life? But Absolutely. you know, the bigger ta- the bigger towns and cities, you know, we're, we're we're Sheffield. Chances are we're going to get a second wave. Because what a what a busy place, and we're pretty high on the graph. I saw a graph just before yep. uh, uh, we came on air that that, that that Yorkshire and Humberside, where we live, is is pretty high of for new cases. So, you know, we're all walking on on eggshells, um, and this weekend will be something to prove. But coming back to cinemas, as we everyone was hoping that we're going to open this week, I think it was it was a little bit foolhardy to to think that that might happen. 
And as of yet, Andy, do you know what the operating system is going to be? Have you, have you been briefed? Is there anything you can share with us on this? Or is it still been in the planning stage? Well, the the Cinema Association has released their rulings on what the minimum is that cinemas need to implement. And so there is the minimum of one metre distance, like so, staggering the seating. Cinemas that never did um, allocated seating will have to do allocated seating or work out a way to have a member of staff in to make sure people don't sit close to each other. So to reduce capacities across cinemas, guidance around the building for how people can walk around safely without being too close to people, collection points having perspex barriers so that it protects the person serving as well as the person being served. I know that some cinemas are adopting a pickup system where you order something using an online system. So even your food, you'll order popcorn and two drinks and there'll be a pickup station to go and collect your food and drink from. That's interesting. So that it's not like you're not all forming queues. And that's what it's trying to break. It's trying to break the queue mentality. It's literally you walk in, you grab your stuff, you go in. Which would be okay if this was a French cinema because that wouldn't wouldn't matter at all. There's things like pick and mix will be not available in the help yourself kind of format. It'll be looking at like pre-bagged or pre-tubbed selections. And it, it's all moving away from, you know, how much contact there can be. Minimum amount of staff needed in order to run. So you won't be having abundance of members of staff bustling around. It will be the minimum amount that are required for the level of business expected. Is this going to get rid of, and I'm looking at a high point here, people getting up out of the seats halfway through a film to go and get that other hot dog or more pick and mix because that just won't be happening. Well, people will have to sit on their, their asses and sit and watch an entire film. That would be a strange world that we'd live in then, wouldn't it? But, yeah, I mean, it, it may do that. It may push away from the, you know, the people who do go out for more drinks. You know, people will buy their initial drink, food and drink, and that's got to last them. Which, you know, if they're going to drink less drinks, then, okay, they're going to use the toilet less. So people like us who just want to watch the films without disturbances won't have to counting the people going out the screens all the time. You see, there's a silver <laughs> lining to everything. And just while we're at it, I've just got to think what you said about the uh, the association of um, of cinema people or whatever. I can see that like some inner circle. You know, like the one in the episode of um, <laughs> What We Do in the Shadows where the uh, uh, the inner circle of vampires met. Is it, is it like that? I hope it is. <laughs> In my head, it is. It, pro- it probably is. Uh, but yeah, AMC's decision to move obviously came after Tenet got moved, and Tenet got moved because New, Lo- New York looks like it's staying locked down. And as we've stated before, if it doesn't open in one location, Nolan has said it doesn't open anywhere in the world. In, in addition to that, I mean, obviously the impact of those two films, big hitters moving, has moved also moved Bill and Ted's to the 28th of August. Without remorse, the Michael B. Jordan film Um, adapted from the Tom Clancy novel, has now moved to February next year. And obviously we're going to see a lot of other films slowly bounce along the scale again. And I don't think this is going to be the last time that things are going to move. I'll be surprised if we don't see another shift for Tenet at some point. There's a a lot of of, of moving parts to, to, to keep in mind, isn't there? You know, one film moves and then other films have to move against it. I'm, I'm still not certain we'll, we'll get Bond this year, if I'm perfectly no. honest. I think that'll be one which will spill over to next year. But, but hey, at least it means that when they eventually come, those films are polished and in the can. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, and, and, and an audience ready to go. What else do we have? 
So, uh, Marvel news and Chiwetel Ejiofor has confirmed that he will be returning in Doctor Strange 2 as Mordo. I'm so looking forward to this. Now that Sam Raimi's on board, and I have nothing against the previous uh, director, Scott, Scott Derrickson. Scott but, Derrickson. But I just adore Sam Raimi's style, and it just couldn't have been a better fit. Just, you know, when you think of Doctor Strange, and when we were mentioned this, how could we have not thought uh, of, of Sam Raimi for Doctor Strange? Just absolutely perfect. So Mordo will obviously be continuing his quest to take back all the magic. Uh, but how far it's going to develop. Because it's an interesting character, Mordo, because his reasons for what he's doing, and whilst it's seen as a bad thing, he's doing it for kind of the right reasons. Yeah, which always makes for interesting villains. Villains and are own, villains are the heroes of their own story. So it, it makes absolutely perfect sense. And he's a much more complex character than than the comic book version ever was. I think he was he was jealous of Doctor Strange in, in the comics. So yeah, I think, and it's great casting. And, uh, uh, you know, no one ever mentioned... Um, the the race change in that one because it was he was so well done. Yeah, I I could kind of see him being the the next wave version of Loki for the films. Yeah, uh, in yeah. a character who, you know, he does betray them quite a lot. He is quite villainous, but there's an essence to him that makes him quite loyal to some aspects of the of the group. I'm interested to see what, how they use him. And in other Marvel news, Anthony Mackie has been talking about the upcoming Falcon and Winter Soldier series, and it's sounding very tasty. And they've resumed filming, haven't they, on that? Yeah, they pretty much had most of it already done. There was only finishing touches to do and pick-up shots, and the same goes with the Division. Pretty much all of it was already done. Which has now been upped to nine episodes now. Uh, well, the Falcon and Winter Soldier series isn't going to feel like an episodic series. Anthony Mackie has said that it will play as though it's a six-hour movie split up into chunks. Which is how we'll watch it. <laughs> Let's yes. be honest. Let's if we're going to watch it, we're going to watch it as a six-hour movie. <laughs> Unless it's running but, weekly, we're going to watch it in one go. Yeah, I, I suspect that they will. Disney will release it weekly. But I, will I be able to wait the whole run before I watch it all in one go? That's not going to happen, Andy. I know you too it's well. Not, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It, I, I'm more excited with the fact that it is going to be the one story because we don't need episodic chunks for this kind of thing. We know these characters. We don't need them to be introduced in one episode, etc., etc. We just want to be able to get into the, the meat of it, basically. Uh, and in other comic book news, I can't remember if we mentioned it last week, but uh, Michael Keaton was due to return as Batman. I know. Um, I would use an expletive at this point because I was that excited by hearing this news. And we know we didn't mention it, and, and it could have passed us by. So the idea is that, that there's going to be a Flash movie eventually. But now <laughs> they've announced that the Flash movie will be the Flashpoint story, which I never read, so I know very little about it. I've got an understanding of what it's about. And yeah. the idea is that they're going to bring back Michael Keaton to, to play, well, one assumes, an aged Batman. Yeah. And what a fantastic idea, because... Who'd have thought Michael Keaton would ever come back into the role? And who'd have thought that he would now be the most iconic Batman to a degree? Yeah. Because he just, he, he's, so, he's the Batman, he's the proto-Batman for which I think all, all the future Batmans have been based on. You know, the, the fact that he wears armor, the fact that he's, he changes how he, he, he stands and his delivery and, you know, the way he uses his voice, it all comes from, from Keaton's portrayal. He is my favorite screen Batman. Adam West is still my favourite screen Batman, but uh, Keaton's a very close second. <laughs> he just, he, he just, uh, you know, if you imagine if the internet had been out when Michael Keaton was cast, then the internet would have melted uh, because everyone thought it was the worst casting in history. 
And I remember all out. the letters getting written into um, magazines at the time. Yeah. Like people just like absolutely opposed to it. It was like, oh, th- he, he can't be Batman. He's he's a comedian. This isn't good. And then he comes out just like, oh, wow, were we wrong? He is Batman and he is the classic Batman. Did you know that Steven Seagal was up for the point of, uh, for the part <laughs> of one point? I had read that. Oh, as that, was Bill that, Murray. I, I can't quite see a sardonic Batman. <laughs> no, no, that would have gone in a completely different direction. But, but yeah, interesting news. And there's there's something flying about that if Keaton doesn't uh, doesn't take the part, then Christian Bale is is ready to jump in, which I can't see to be perfectly honest. No, I mean he, he is he stated categorically after those three films that if Nolan never returns, he's never returning. So why would he return if Nolan's not back? So I, I can't I can't see Bale stepping into those shoes again or cape for that matter so someone who can see stepping into anyone's shoes because he'll literally take up any job is gerard butler who has threatened the world that there's another has fallen film in the pipeline is there really you know what and oh. i've not seen any of them oh well i've seen i've seen the first My two i've not seen the clear. third one yet uh, the third one was angel has fallen which was supposed to be a personal one because he, oh he's been betrayed and made to look like a bad guy and he's being hunted in his words, I think with everything going on, we need him. He needs to come back. I think you'll be seeing another. We're toying away with another really fantastic idea. Another really fantastic idea? You haven't had one fantastic idea yet in this franchise. <laughs> uh, Mr. Butler, if you're listening, um, it's okay. Don't worry. Look, look, they are cheesy fun. They are nonsense, but they are not fantastic films. No. And we don't necessarily need another one but then again at least if he does another one of these it'll stop him doing geostorm too and if you've seen geostorm you know why we need to stop that being made moving swiftly on <laughs> now one franchise that we do love and has been talked about so many times for coming back and it apparently it's still alive and there can be only one the highlander remake is still in the pipeline you see when, when we talked about it and we did the deep dive you and I portrayed a, a, a how showed how much love we had for Highlander. I think it can it can be picked up. I think there can be a new and interesting take on it. Well, do you know who's attached? No, who is attached? I mean, there's been several people attached at some point. Attached to create, formulate, and direct is none other than John Wick's Chad Stelsky. Which is a great choice because you know the action sequences will be second to none. Um, in his words, we're heavy. We're in heavy development mode on Highlander, tweaking the scripts, writing, conceptualizing sequences, how we're going to do everything. We probably have a lot more in-person kind of things, but it hasn't slowed down our development process at all. So it sounds like it's getting pretty close. No casting's been announced yet, I'm assuming. No casting yet. I mean, it's gone through so many rumours over the years. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds was attached to it at one point. Yeah, I mean, I'd have been all for that. I mean, I know when he got announced, people say, but he's a Canadian, he can't play a Scotsman. It's like, well, <laughs> didn't Lambert. stop a Frenchman playing one. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I'm, I'm excited about this because I do want this. This is a franchise that I do feel that they could get something out of better than what we had as sequels. Yeah, well, it would be And with a, with a director such as this behind it, it's got potential. It's got potential to be something more than just a remake. It could be its own entity. No, I know you, you had me on. Uh, there could be only one, to be honest. There could be only one. <laughs> um, other reboots. So the Pirates franchise has nabbed Margot Robbie for a female-fronted take on the franchise. 
it's going to be a completely separate outing than the already announced reboot, which is in development with Ted Elliott and Craig Mazin. That's interesting. Now, from what I know, she's set to star and she's set to produce. So this is something she's got control of across the board. It's what what happened with Birds of Prey. She had production credits, um, had not like she could have say in how it was going to be developed. And obviously she was central role in the film. And this is another one. There's been a lot of negativity about this online because there is, as soon because... as you as soon as you announce an all female version of something which traditionally has a male in the lead role, all the basement dwellers start crying and like moaning to their mum that they need another sandwich. <laughs> oh, and if you're a basement dweller listening to this, get a grip, really. Get a grip on that sandwich so your mum doesn't have to fetch you another one. <laughs> no, I'm interested in it. I mean, you know, there's no announcement of the story. What characters? I think it'd be interesting if she's if they're doing an Anne Bonny and Mary Read um, pirates approach, which are two famous female pirates from um, law and history. So it'd be great to take that kind of approach. I mean, they've been tackled on the TV series Black Sails. Never saw that. I heard it was good. Very good. Very. If you like piratical adventure, it's a very it's a very serious take on the piratical adventure for an adult audience. And you had me at piratical. Piratical. I don't know if that's actually another word, but you know, we'll stick with it. We'll stick with it. There's no one to tell we'll us no. We're in lockdown. <laughs> and um, again, it's so many reboots and remakes and like sequels at the moment. Scott Pilgrim, that great film by Edgar Wright that just didn't find its audience. And do you know it was 10 years ago since that came out? 10 years. And because it's 10 years, that's why Edgar Wright's been talking a bit about this plans to actually do an animated version. I've got a lot of love for that film, um, but I tried to watch it again recently and it, and it left me flat. I think it was definitely a time piece. It, it, it was about what cinema was about is where Edgar Wright was about at that particular time. For me, it's not aged particularly well, but I would be interested to see more uh, Scott Pilgrim in some sort of form. Have you ever read the comic? No, well, I tell a lie. I I read one issue of it because the comic had quite a quite a lot of additional and alternate material in the way it told the story. Well, this animated version, Edgar Wright has been confirming that he's been talking with Brian O'Malley, the comic creator, um, about it for a while. What if they do the actual comics in anime form, rather than just doing a remake of the film version? Go through and do all the chapters of the the comic series. So it's been discussed. There's nothing official yet, but he's been teasing that he'd love to revisit that kind of world because he really loved that film. He put a lot of his own heart into that film and to not see it get, you know, get the respect that it deserved at the time, it just proper sank at the box office without a trace. It It was a big budget indie film and I think it had that indie sensibility which, which is why it found a cult audience but didn't find a mainstream audience. Netflix news. So Netflix are developing a sequel to Chicken Run with Aardman. Yes, now I'd heard about this, and this kind of came out of nowhere because it's it's pretty, it's it's actually quite a long way into development and production. Um, yeah. And they kept very quiet about it, and until news uh, news broke this week on it. But I'm guessing it's going to be minus at least one cast member. Well, at the moment they don't know who out of the original cast, if anyone, will be returning. But one that they know for definite isn't returning is Mel Gibson. Due to how controversial he is as a person these days, they've decided that they're going to recast the part of Rocky. So the character will still be there, but it won't be Mel Gibson voicing him. 
Uh, the story, we do know that the story, whereas the first one was The Great Escape with Chickens, this one is Mission Impossible with Chickens. I couldn't find a, another reason not to go, and that's the reason <laughs> just to get me in. Is a, You know how much I love a heist movie. A heist movie with chickens, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a film made in heaven. They've said that like all the escaped chickens are now living a peaceful life on an island until something on the mainland puts all the chicken world at threat. And so Mission Impossible-style adventures start. Can't wait. <laughs> um, I'm in for this. I, I don't care if the original cast come back or not. To be honest with you, not many of the original cast were that iconic, except for Mel Gibson. But I think I could cope without Mel Gibson's voice in there. So I just yeah, want a bit more... To see you bring I just want to see more Chicken Run Entertainment. It's not why you see an Ardman film. It's 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 for yeah. them. They are the stars of the film, not necessarily. It's cast. never the names of the people. Names of the people cast into exactly. them. It's always the actual models and creations. Uh, speaking of Netflix, they've been developing an Enola Holmes film starring Millie Bobby Brown, which is it's taken from a book series by Nancy Springer, looking at the younger sister of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, Henry Cavill's attached to this to play Holmes, isn't he? Or oh, he's, he's, yes. he's portraying Holmes in this. However, um, they're facing some legal issues at the moment because the Conan Doyle estate are claiming it infringes on their copyright and trademark. I thought that um, Sherlock Holmes was out of copyright now and then anybody could do whatever they want with it. Well, that that's a common misconception. The first... that Many of the Holmes stories are public domain and anyone can do what they want with them. But apparently the last 10 stories by the author are not public domain. The, the claim is that this new spin-off draws on aspects of those stories, especially the fact that in those last 10 stories, the, the normally stoic detective shows moments of emotion and empathy. And because they're showing a, an emotional and empathic version of Sherlock Holmes, they are taking from that last 10 stories characterization. It, it's sort of interesting that it's, you know, the series is, is done. Netflix aren't yeah. that far off from showing it that it's it's now happened. I often wonder when these sorts of stories come up, you know, that that they are there for marketing exercises, and this has already been and gone and been sorted months ago. Because if you're going to do something with Sherlock Holmes, I think you have to yeah. you have to know that what are what is and what isn't on copyright, and and they have a lot better lawyers than than the likes of you and I do. Hence why we I didn't sue the I thought I was supposed to be the cynic out of this partnership. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. It's, uh, it's what lockdown can do to a man. <laughs> but it'll no doubt get sorted out. Like you say, it's pretty much all in the can by now. So it will just be a last dotting of the I's, crossing of the T's, and okay, if we pay you this much, can we just show this? Yes, go ahead. So we'll still see it, but... Um, it does mean that the Conan Doyle estate will get some money out of it if their legal push goes through. Um, interesting news. Ooh. And one which um, it, it poses an interesting view of the future of filmmaking. There's a film go which has been financed by Bonded Capital Media, Happy Moon Productions and 1010 Global Media, which is going to focus around the creation of an AI woman and her escape from the program she was created within. And the lead actress is an AI robot. It's very, very similar to that uh, movie Simone, which uh, starred Al Pacino, came out about 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, but yet this this complete act like AI creation has been made by Japanese scientists Hiroshi Ishiguro and Koai Ogawa. 
as part of their study of robotics. And they've taught her how to behave and how to act and how to create false emotions, etc. And so she's now being cast to lead a film about an AI creation. How meta. That couldn't be any more meta if you tried. I mean, this this is an interesting way to go about it because we have had films which have focused on the creation of artificial intelligence life forms like Ex Machina in recent years. Yeah. Uh, and we've had films like iRobot. But it's always had an actual person acting the part of the AI. Even like great films, indie films like Her. I mean, we had, that had Scarlett Johansson as the voice of the AI throughout it. Marvellous film. Oh, I love that film. But this time, we're going to actually find out whether an AI can act and can be convincing. There's a lot of actors who I think should be AI who there's, there's managed to pull think are. which are very, very <laughs> robotic and still have careers. I'm not going to mention any names on this show, but, you know, it doesn't take a big stretch of the imagination to guess who we're talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's this is the start of a new dawn of the industry that, you know, we're living in a time where we get virtual performances. We get, you know, we've got actors being raised from the dead to be cast in films. And now we've got robots taking the part of actors. And it all comes where down to one be? thing. And as you say, I'm the cynical one this week. But if the film isn't a success, if it doesn't yeah. make enough money, then I don't think it was an idea that they'll be sticking around with for very long. So let's let's see how this one develops. Um, jo- Joseph Kaczynski is no stranger to sci-fi with Tron Legacy and Oblivion behind him. Oblivion. But now, now he's going to um, direct a reboot of Twister. Is that a film that ever was anybody's list of films that must be rebooted? Highlander, yes. Twister, hmm. It wasn't particularly that memorable when it came out. Is it a film that really, really needs new attention? I mean, he's just done the uh, the Top Gun sequel, which is, uh, uh, to all intent and purposes, the kind of the full stop on the way that those sorts of films could ever be filmed again. But I don't know about a twist unless he's going to be actually having a camera in a twister. I can't see <laughs> that it's a film that really anybody thought of. This is a film we need to see rebooted. It's not like we're talking about Highlander. It's it's a it's a very strange choice for a reboot, and you know I get that you know the disaster films are starting to become back into. That's because we're living it, Andy. Because we're living it. We're living a disaster, but you know Twister isn't the disaster film that I'd go back to. I I wasn't that enamoured with it when it first came out. Anyway, I mean Bill Paxton's great in it, Helen Hunt's great in it, but the film itself is a bit, eh. Yeah, it's got two good good sequences in it, and that's about it. So unless they're going to ramp it up and do it as a you know day after tomorrow kind of world ending climate change twister effect or throw some shark na- sharks in there i don't know sharknado's done it so much better but <laughs> joseph kaczynski i generally like what he does i think he, yeah, he's, he's a great got a great vision i think he's got a great storytelling nature so maybe he'll bring something to it that we just weren't expecting yeah i'm looking forward to his top gun i really am yeah same here uh jason bloom I, we've talked about the bloom productions of their classic monster movies quite a few times because you know in- invisible man there's the wolfman in production um it's been speculated is it going to work to a dark universe is this their new way of doing it he's confirmed that this is in no way a retooling of the dark universe which is kind of good because the invisible man really really proved that you didn't have to have a huge budget uh, a, a big star names to launch a horror movie franchise and you know, that's what horror movies are about. You don't need big... As soon as you have a big star attached to a to a horror movie, 
it takes away any sense of threat because you know that big star, if the film's going to be a success, will want to come back and do a sequel. Yeah. And you know, it was always it was always a misjudged good idea in principle, but it was misjudged, and especially after the Mummy came out, completely misjudged. So I, I'm I for one, I'm pleased that they are going to be standalone horror movies by a, a company that does interesting, not always successful, but always does something interesting with the horror movie franchise. Always does them for a low budget as well. Yeah, they, they you know they make them cheap. Uh, they turn them out, and that's to me is the secret of good horror movies. The best horror movies in the world, the ones that you always go back to, Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, were low budget uh, and usually pretty much self-contained with a small amount of characters. Once it becomes a worldwide event like the like the Mummy does in a and a CGI fest, then they stop being interested, and particularly even worse for a horror movie, they stop being scary. Uh, you mentioned Night of the Living Dead. So let's round off the news with something linked to that. And we're doing a lot of segues today. I'm quite pleased with this. You are. You are turning to Segway Man, which is a really, really poor superhero. But, you know, go for it. So. But we have found a title for this week's show. Segway Man. So Romero, he like passed away a few years ago, sadly. But his during his life, there was one movie that he made that, was never released. You see, uh, I never knew this, and I'm a Romero fan. So 46 years ago, he was commissioned by the Lutherian Society to do a project to showcase the issues of elder abuse and ageism. And the film that he created tells of an elderly man that finds himself disorientated and isolated as his struggles are manifested in roller coasters and large crowds. And the film's titled The Amusement Park. Well, this film never got the light of day. It was just filmed and then just left. And hidden away. No one knows why it was never got never got production like pushing it out. It just sat there. It's not a horror, but it's been described as one of his most horrific films as a result because it's very real and very brutal. And it's looking at actual, you know, the the problems with getting old. And perhaps that's why it uh, it 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 was uh, much maligned because it, it's horrific in its own way. Yeah. Um, Yellow Veil Pictures have now secured the rights to the project, which they dub an alluring snapshot of the filmmaker's early artistic capacity and style. And they are looking to see if they can manage to get it released to the world so we can all see this lost piece of Romero history. Well, you've got to remember about George, George A. Romero that, you know, Night of the Living Dead was the film that pushed him. But some of his subsequent early films really were, were sort of art house horror movies as opposed to you know his dead series uh, films like martin yeah. for instance which is yeah. which is a much more a borderline art art film than it is is a horror film it's it's a fantastic film i think it's excellent but it's not what you consider to be mainstream horror um before we we move on from the news i just got to mention because he, he was one of my comedic heroes um, and I'm going to start with a quote, which is, every morning I pick up my newspaper, get the obituary section, and see if I'm listed. If I'm not, I'll have my <laughs> breakfast. And that's the passing of the fantastic and sorely missed great Carl Reiner, who has died at, at 98. Now, most people will know Carl Reiner from um, Ocean's Eleven um, and the Ocean's Eleven franchise. But before that... He was the creator of the Dick Van Dyke show. He was the director that really put Steve Martin on the cinematic map with the, the jerk. jerk. Dead, uh, man, don't dead man don't plaid. wear plaid. He, the jerk is so funny. It's, it's laugh out loud, make me <laughs> cry funny. 
Uh, and also his fantastic work that he did with Mel Brooks, who's, who is in fact just celebrating, I think, his 99th birthday, if I'm not mistaken. But it's I a sad passing. Right, yeah. uh, and it's worth, if you if you don't know any of his other work outside of um, outside of his work with either Steve Martin or even the Ocean films, then you really do have to check out, and it's 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 easily found on on uh, on YouTube, and it's a sketch known as the two thousand year old man, which is one of the funniest things you will ever 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 hear, uh, and it's our gift to you that you that you find the two thousand year old man, which is which is Carl Rayner and, and, and Mel Brooks, which is is just incredibly funny. But he had an an amazing career uh, as well as the shows that he created. Uh, he directed uh, Oh God, Where's Popper? Uh, we said The Jerk and, and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. All of Me, which is another Steve Martin film, and Man with Two and Brains. And Man with Two Brains, which oh. is <laughs> so so funny. Of course, we we saw him as an actor, and uh, they did. He did his last screen to a degree. His his with his comedy partner Mel Brooks, where they were in Toy Story Two, uh, yeah. where they voiced the toy uh, Carl Rhinoceros. That's <laughs> a pretty good way to go out. So. Be hugely missed, but but what a legacy of work! A fantastic comedian, and that's it for the news. Okay, so as you know, if you've been uh, an avid listener to the show, that uh, I've been setting Andy a challenge every week to watch a film that uh, he's missed at the cinema, uh, and usually these are Oscar-winning films. They're all Oscar-winning films, aren't they, Andy? Uh, yeah, it's it. It's not. It's even films that are missed at the cinema because I wasn't born. Um, well, you allowed that. I'll give you that one. But there have been. Come on, there have been a few. It's a, where it's I've all, been there's a few that I should have watched at the cinema. Yes, and we've had some interesting choices. We we saw the town. Um, yep. We did uh, election last week, mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit of change of pace. And I said, this is the film that I just blubbed all the way through, like a like an eleven year old girl. Uh, and it's a film that you've not seen, which is Steven Spielberg's War Horse. We are at war! We are at war! I promise you that I'll look after him. I'll respect him, and if I can, I'll return him to your care. Rated PG-13. Uh, written by Lee Hall, uh, Richard Curtis, based on uh, a 1982 novel of the same name. And of course, there's a, a stage play adaption of the same same film. It's uh, set before and during World War One, telling the story of Joey, uh, a thoroughbred horse raised by uh, a young British lad called Albert, uh, who is bought by the British Army, leading him to encounter numerous individuals and owners throughout Europe. And it's a war-torn Europe while experiencing some of the, the most dreadful tragedies of the war that happens around uh, around him. And, and the story is told through the eyes of a horse. As a DreamWorks film, um, it's probably not one of the more famous uh, Steven Spielberg film. It didn't seem to set the world on fire, even though it was uh, um, named one of the best top 10 films uh, of 2011. But it's all down to what you thought of it, Andy, not what I thought about it. <laughs> Tell us what you thought about Warhorse, and did you too cry like a eleven-year-old girl? I'll start off by saying no, I didn't cry. Oh, you man of steel, you! Oh, I'm, I'm I'm a rock. Um, th- with with the film, I mean, the film is an adaptation of a children's book. Uh, Michael Moore Pogo was the writer of the book, I believe. That's right. And yeah. and 
like you've described it, it, it follows through the eyes of a horse as it goes through these events through wartime. And it, it, watching it, I couldn't help but think, if that was just a, a rough collie, this would be a Lassie film. Because it's got that same structure of one of the Lassie kind of films where Lassie starts off with a loving family but gets separated and gets embroiled in like tragedy, war, etc., 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 before finally making the way home. It's that kind of simple story bouncing from mini-adventure to mini-adventure while the world changes around them. And, and uh, as you said, though, and I was pointing out, this is a, it is a children's novel, and yeah. and that is very much of a plot line of a children's novel. Something, something happens, a little bit of history, etc. I mean, you you can you can use that that sort of genre style to a lot of a lot of kids' film. Last season is almost a perfect example of that. I'll give you that. And it's it, as a film, it's a great it's a great family adventure film that also offers some elements of history in there to educate the youngsters as they're doing it. And this, this is what makes good children's films. The good children's films are the ones that can educate whilst also entertaining. And not talk down to children. And it, it doesn't talk down at all. And what it's an eclectic who's who of British thespians. I was, every, every time a new scene started in a new section of like the war and it was different cast members coming in, I was like, hang on, that's Benedict Cumberbatch. Hang on, there's Tom Hiddleston, David Thewlis, Toby Kebbell. So many familiar faces popping up left, right and centre and all really putting their all into the story. Peter Mullen is fantastic at the start and the end of the films. He bookends the film. Emily Watson is magnificent. And the cast are all on fine form. But for me, Spielberg takes a somewhat melodramatic approach that didn't quite resonate with me. Okay. And and some of his production choices, um, which he and his cinematographer came up with, for the lighting and backdrop choices... Gave the film an almost 1940s and 50s style aesthetic that looked kind of out of place at times. You had like the the, the pink and purple sunsets. And it was like, hang on, this is supposed to be in the south of England. That That's not <laughs> that's not an English sunset. And there was moments that made it look like a film and broke me out of the fact that it could have been an immersive journey because it, it looked produced. But it... It's it does have a, a whole, an old Hollywood feel, uh, feel to it. I'll, give, I'll absolutely give you that. It does you, look like you, you could say sort of film there was one shot on a studio lot. A gone with the wind kind of lavishness to some of the moments. Um, in the art direction. There's some great standout moments in it, though. I mean, there were moments that I was completely captivated by it. And whilst I didn't cry, I could feel myself like really starting to connect with this horse. Uh, the No Man's Land Rescue is possibly one of the finest scenes in the film um, after it's it's tried it's desperate like galloping through the trenches of the german army and then across no man's land and gets trapped within all the barbed wire fencing and yes. then you get a soldier from east side having that touching moment of humanity to rescue this horse this is not a film this is not a film that actually pulls its punches when it when it talks about World War One, which for an American filmmaker, World War One didn't have much of an impact on the U.S. as it as it did to the U.K. and to to Europe. You know, it was a, a millions of horses were sent abroad from the U.K. and only sort of sixty two thousand returned. The rest dying or got slaughtered in in, in France for meat. So it was a it was a film that has a has a huge emotional impact on it, and the fact. Uh, and this is this is always Spielberg's man, uh, magic that he manages to pour into. He, he he makes the horse 
empathetic, that you understand what it's feeling and you understand the pain uh, and the joy that it goes through on the journey. It's you're not just a you're not just a witness to what this what's happening to this, to this beautiful animal. You you feel its you feel its emotions and you know in a in if this was an animated film the, the horse would speak but he does it in yeah. in so many different ways that 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 helps you form a bond with a with an on-screen uh, an on-screen animal with ever without ever making it anthropomorphic in any way the horse has a very distinctive personality it's um, it's a very belligerent horse but it's also a very very loyal horse at the same time and yeah you, you do get to really connect with the horse at moments through the film what I found stunning about this is um, I, I discovered afterwards that there's only three digital effects used in the whole film for a total of about three seconds. That's right, yeah. All the, and when you see some of the moments, like the aforementioned horse galloping through the crowded trenches of the bat and through the fences of the battlefield, to know that that was done for real, that's a, a stunning piece of filmmaking. And that shows the skill and confidence that Spielberg does have in handling you know, not only like a cast, but animals as well. And where special effects do take over because it is a combination of real horses, you say a little bit of CGI, uh, but a lot of it's animatronic horses, uh, and you never see the join, which is always it's what good special effects blended. is about. You tell me what's what's real, what's what's puppetry, what's CGI, because at any point in that film, you you don't know, uh, and that's that's the strength of it because you're caught up in the story, you're not looking for the seams, so to speak. I, yeah, the end result of this film was a family adventure film set during war that delivers exactly what it meant to. It was meant to be a family adventure film. It didn't quite captivate me as well as it did you, but I still enjoyed it, and I didn't feel that I didn't feel it dragged at any point. It's just not something that I felt that I'm I'm not that bothered if I watch it again. I thought it was a great experience to watch it. There was moments that kind of let it down, but there was enough strong moments and some great acting throughout it that lifted it and. Another John Williams score that is just majestic. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it is one of those films that's like his score. It, it's it's powerful and moving. And I think the the story on this film is it's a powerful, moving story. And, and but the heart of it is it's a children's film, and it's and it's a children's yep. film that doesn't rely on, on cheap gags or, or or even cheap sentiment to that matter. Even though it's a it's it's very moving in places. It's it's a good old fashioned film. It's when they say they don't make films like this anymore. Actually, yes, they do. It was nominated for best uh, score, uh, best picture, art direction, cinematography, and the two sound categories. Won none of them, but that's because this was the same year of the artist and Hugo, so it didn't stand a chance. Let's be honest. So, looking forward to next week, we've talked about uh, we've gone through some some heck of a films, but a couple of weeks ago. I propose that you watch The Town, which I, I know you enjoyed, uh, uh, and we oh, both really enjoyed it. We've not actually disagreed on anything yet, particularly apart from maybe Princess Bride. So um, this week, it's a connection to The Town, and it's Mystic River. came out in 2003. It's a noirish uh, mystery drama directed and scored by Clint Eastwood, stars Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, Kevin Bacon. Screenplay by Brian Hegland, based on, and this is the connection, uh, Dennis Lehane, who was, who was very much a part of that um, Affleck look at Boston. So yeah. your challenge this week, if you choose to accept it, which I know you will, <laughs> is Mystic River. So we'll have a chat about that next week. 
So as you know, we've not been uh, not been reviewing films in the cinema. I guess what we could do is we could review some of the stuff on Netflix. But I'm so yeah. behind on stuff that's on Netflix right now. So much to view at the moment. As I said, I was I'm still going through um, Walking Dead. I'm literally two episodes off. I think I'm trying to do is get get some of the series that I've got just been hanging yeah. around and get those in the can before starting anything. Get through new. the backlog. Yeah, and there is you know even in lockdown there's still a backlog. So at this time, we do a deep dive instead of doing a, a critical review on anything. Uh, and with the passing uh, just the other week of Joel Schumacher, uh, Andy and I decided that The Lost Boys is a perfect film to do uh, a deep dive on. And also a celebration of search of the life of Joel Schumacher. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Sammy, help me! Stay back! Stay back! What's happening to me, Star? Get yourself a good, sharp stink. Drive it right through his heart. You're a vampire, Michael! My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire! Well, you wait till Mom finds out, buddy! When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. Michael, they're coming! Oh, Before we talk about Lost Boys, I found a very, very interesting fact out about Joel Schumacher, which is a little bit shocking, incredibly uh, impressive. But Joel Schumacher, in his own words, and he passed away at 80, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Has a a kind of, well, a very interesting uh, claim that um, left me speechless. In fact... um, so much so, well, so much so that I'm, I'm, I'm more in admiration than I've ever been about him. And it's nothing to do with his his, uh, his films. And if you know this, it's absolutely fantastic. But he certainly claimed that he has had in his lifetime or had in his lifetime, had sex with up to 20,000 partners. He says he'll never, he never would have kissed and told, but 20,000 par- uh, partners. Now... It's amazing, <laughs> and I'm, I'm incredibly <laughs> impressed. Uh, so he passed away at uh, at eighty. So I'm just, I've been thinking about doing the maths, and he's never going to kiss and tell. He said he's sex with famous people as well as that. He's had sex with married people, and uh, and the, and all the names will went to the to the grave with him. But um, it's not. He it says it's not for for a gay male because it's available. It's just that he's had he's had twenty thousand uh, partners, so I, that's got to be what roughly if he started having sex at sixteen, three hundred lovers a month. <laughs> that's crazy. Where did he find? I mean, he directed movies as well. Where did he find the time? No idea. Incredible. Anyway, I'm going to leave that to to. 
the grand old Duke, Duke of York had 10,000 men, but, you know, that's well and truly knocked out of the park, hasn't it? <laughs> if Joel Schumacher was there, he'd have, he'd have had, him, had him in bed. Uh, I mean, the, the, uh, anyway, uh, uh, it should have been my neat thing, because I think it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> What's your neat thing? <laughs> Joel, Joel Schumacher's sex thing, life. Joel Schumacher's sex life. I think it's, it's absolutely incredible. As I said, I've spent ages trying to, I read the story on the Huffington Post, and I've been trying to work out the math ever since. But I kind of put it down to it's a roughly around 300 or so uh, 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 partners uh, uh, partners a month. As I, said, I don't know where he found the time. <laughs> well, thankfully he did because he gave us the Lost Boys. Now, Lost Boys came out in 1987, uh, directed by Schumacher, as we said. Uh, screenplay written by Jeffrey Boehm. Starred Corey Haim, uh, Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, Corey Feldman, Diana Weist. Uh, Alex Winter from uh, Bill and Ted, uh, Bernard Hughes. And the, the title is a reference to the Lost Boys in Jay and Barry's story, Peter Pan and Neverland. But now it's about uh, teenage vampires who, of course, never grow up. And it was shot in around Santa Cruz, which was renamed for the film. And not only was it a, a big success when it came out, but it's also become, it's, it's become a cult classic as well. And um, a kind of go-to, go-to movie for a lot, a lot of people. It's not a film, interestingly enough, that I love, but I think you might have a different opinion than I do. I, I have, a, I mean, when I rewatched this, I, I found myself really enjoying it, and it's a very light story. A broken family moved to Santa Carla, uh, the murder capital of the world, and the eldest son, Michael, played by Jason Patrick, finds himself recruited by the mysterious Davids to become like them, and like them turns out to be a vampire. And and that's basically it. He he's getting tempted to do his first kill and become a full vampire, whilst his younger brother Sam, played by Corey Haim, meets up with the Frog Brothers in a comic shop, played by Corey Feldman and Jason Ulander. And those two are self-proclaimed vampire hunters and give him comics about vampires as survival guides for Santa Carla. It's light. It's fun. It's heavily heavily embedded in the area it's made and when you re-watch this film you have to throw yourself back to living in the late 80s because you don't get more 80s than a greased up tim capello on a saxophone and that that whole moment of that film just makes you go whoa this really was a weird time uh, it, yeah it was it, me- this was the 80s <laughs> through and through the way it looked the 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 design uh it's it's that music video aesthetic that runs all the way through it it feels like an elongated music video doesn't it yeah you've got music by echo and the bunny men in there you've got in excess and the iconic uh, theme tune cry little sister by gerard McMahon. and it 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 is a music video put into film but this film for me this always captures me because of sutherland Kiefer Sutherland in this film is magnetic and I can actually understand whereas like you look at it and because everything happens so fast it's like why is Michael so quickly hanging on to these scumbags why is he drawn to them but watching how Kiefer Sutherland plays and you can actually understand the magnetic allure that you want to be part of his circle for some reason even though you know he's a bad guy even though he seems wrong there's something about him that draws you in and that for me is what this film all hangs on it hangs on sutherland and his portrayal is so good in this film that you actually think that there must have been some tragedy when he wasn't a vampire that pushed him to this life 
and the inside his soul there's something good trying to fight to get out there's moments in the film that you actually think oh he could be a good guy in, in inside somewhere but then he turns into a nasty piece of work he, it was a star making turn for, for for Sutherland wasn't it I mean it was the film that that really launched him and it was it was the era of the of the Brat Pack movies he'd been in Stand By Me the year before um again with uh Corey Feldman uh but that didn't really put him on the map it was this film that I mean it was sold around him the posters that growing up in bedrooms were the iconic image of him you know it was all, even though he wasn't the lead character when you look at it it should be Jason Patrick Jason Patrick should have been the lead but Kiefer Sutherland was the lead you see, I, this film never really resonated for me because it's it's kind of all over the place. The, the the parts of it which I absolutely adore, I think the vampires are fantastic, making them teen vampires because the original script was was much more uh, of a homage to uh, to Peter Pan and they were they were children. But uh, when Schumacher got involved and he'd just come off Saint Elmo's Fire, uh, so yeah. he wasn't he wasn't the ideal choice for it, and he brought brought with it this sort of teenage this sexual teenage aesthetic to him. Those are the elements that I like. It's it's the Frog Brothers that let it down for me because then it becomes Vampire Goonies. Um, some of the humor's misplaced. Um, and it just, it's just a, it's a, it's a moving train of a film. It's, it never te- seems to, it never seems to sit still long enough to go, it's, it's a spoof, it's a comedy, it's a horror movie, it's a teen angst film. Uh, and, and that's always thrown me out of it. I, I love the aesthetic, and it's and it's so Joel Schumacher in, in, in its aesthetic, which he was he always was, you know, a very very visual director. So I I don't have the love for Lost Boys that a lot of people do. I, I mean I don't have the love for Goonies that a lot of people do, but I know it's a film that that really set a style, and really kind of invented that music video horror look. And he and he kind of came back and did it again, didn't he, with with Flatliners. Yeah that had a very, very similar aesthetic in, in, a, in a different story. Why do you think it's lasted so long? Why do people, do you think, resonate still with Lost Boys? Why is it considered a classic? I think it's purely Keith Sutherland. I do think that purely it's his presence in this film that makes it something more than what it would have been. He is such an iconic... It, he's the kind of vampire that everyone thinks, oh, if I ever became a vampire, I want to be that cool. I want to be that magnetic. I want to have people close to me like that who like look up to me and everything he is the central focus point and you can because he's so alluring you can understand why people would want to be around him and so it makes it more than what the film would have been if it had been a quite flat approach done interestingly um his character his vampire is one of the only ones that doesn't explode or dissolve away at the end of the film that, that's because they were thinking the of a was, sequel weren't they yeah schumacher always wanted to get him back into a sequel and explore that character further. So he he knew that he was the focus of this film. And he tried to get Lost Girls done. That never got off the ground. There was loads of other plans not off, not off the ground. It wasn't until 2008 when there was a comic book called Reign of Frogs that the character came back. And that served as a sequel to this film and a prequel to the straight-to-DVD film, The Tribe. Which are, which are quite forgettable at the best of times. Yeah, the, the, the Tribe and the third film, The Thirst, are... You have to be a, a really dedicated fan to like them. I watch them and, you know, I, I, I'll be happy never to see them again. Whereas Lost Boys, I'm happy to go back and rewatch. I quite like the... I like the the chemistry that's starting to build between the two Corys in this film as well. This was the first film that they worked on. 
and you can see their chemistry starting to you know really join them because they went on to work together in quite a few projects over the years and became really close friends and they work and that's why i'm not so put off by like the frog brothers in there because i don't care about newlander he doesn't he's kind of latched on but it's Corey feldman's um character and Corey haynes character that link and really gel as the younger members of the cast it's fun it's salem's lot for teenagers and it's very much set in the 80s once you get past all that i've got a lot of time for it and i never shy away from a rewatch of this you can't deny its cultural influence the i don't think without lost boys you wouldn't have had um you wouldn't wouldn't have had twilight you wouldn't have had buffy um you know even what we do in the shadows referenced it uh yeah in in the first season so i think it's i think it's iconic for me the perfect vampire film that came from that which is which is a, a lost boys kind of outglossed it was was near dark i've got a lot of love for near dark uh, uh, uh quite similar movies in 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 many ways you mentioned buffy and a term used in buffy quite frequently is that someone would vamp out and that term was originated from the lost boys and um, there's a lot of things that you put into culture including that you're eating maggots and worms michael worms which has been emulated by other films with them influencing them to see something that they couldn't that wasn't actually there and then play to comedy effect in what we do in the shadows now <laughs> we know that this was a, a schumacher film it nearly wasn't richard donner was originally lined up to direct it uh, he stayed on as a producer uh, he went on to do Lethal Weapon because the the script wasn't wasn't done, uh, but as we said with with Schumacher, it, it's his it's his style that's that's painted all over it, and and he and he definitely gave it that that music video style. As a director, you know he's he's been he's much maligned for for the Batman films, and to some extent with with Batman and Robin, which he apologised for, uh, yeah. deservedly so. But he had a great career and 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 did some iconic films. Outside of this, outside of Lost Boys, and we mentioned Flatliners, which uh, I, I think Falling is down. much better, much better film than than Lost Boys. Falling Down is one that stands out for me, uh, and right up to Phone Booth, which was you know an entire film yeah. set in a phone booth. He was a, it was a it was a very very stylized director. Uh, say the Batman films have a tendency to mar the stuff that he's done. He did subsequently and and previous to it. I, I love uh, say Elmo's Fire. Um, he, he was flashy. He was a flashy director. He knew how to use colours. There was, was, was a twinkle and a little bit of sparkle in the films that he's made. And, and I put that down to the fact that he started out in, in costuming. Um, uh, he, he was a, a camp individual and there, was, there were elements of camping in a lot of his films. Uh, but he's, he, he'll be sorely missed. I think he was a, a, a one-of-a-time director. I don't know about what you, what you think, Andy. Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, after we recorded last week's show, I I added a bit towards on the intro uh, to talk about his passing because it literally the news of that literally came in half an hour after we finished recording, and in that I mentioned a lineup of films that you know resonate with me from the director, and yeah he, he was a staggering director he he could tackle satire, social commentary, camp kitsch, everything. And did it, yeah. You know, as bad as Batman and Robin was, Batman Forever wasn't that bad. No, it, it exactly. wasn't bad at all. Got a fair bit of love for that one. Batman and Robin sadly fell under the um, pressure to make more toys, and that's where it all went wrong. But 
yeah, he's gone on record to he went on record to say that yeah, he shouldn't he shouldn't have been pressured. He should have gone with his choices. He shouldn't have had let the studio push him to do certain things. Great director, great creator, and um, a great a great loss. Yeah, a, a, a one of a, a one of a type. Uh, uh, director and you know if you've if you've not familiar with his work there's so much to to check out other than than lost boys uh, as andy said uh well worth seeing is falling down highly recommended is um is tigerland which which yeah. uh, launched colin farrell's career uh phone booth i, I absolutely adore when i when i've taught script writing classes i use uh, i use phone booth as, a, as an example of how to write a tight tight script and, and keep something claustrophobic yeah it'll absolutely be missed and and a bit of a legend and and still twenty thousand. Twenty. there's going to be twenty thousand people who are morning uh, showing morning at the moment <laughs> if you uh if you've enjoyed the show and it's your first time where have you been but uh, if you enjoying, we we urge you to subscribe because we need subscriptions to keep the show going. We'd also uh, love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us via Twitter on at Filmfile UK. Uh, but at this point, if you are a, a regular listener, you'll know that at the end of the show, we like to tell you about our well, we call it our neat thing. Uh, it's what we've seen, done, played with, watched, enjoyed over the last week. So, Andy. Knock me out. What was uh, what's your neat thing for the last week? I actually had about five or six different things that I was trying I to. I don't know from. how you do it. I get through. And it's literally <laughs> in the past twenty four hours that loads of things have come to me. For one, which I'm just going to briefly mention, but it's not my neat thing. Is have you checked out David Lynch's YouTube channel? I haven't. Oh, check out his YouTube channel. He's doing little daily, like what what is David doing today? Videos. And things like, you know, he's making a little holder for his iPhone to turn it into like a camera rig. And it, yeah, today he dropped some glue on his trousers and so uh, used the glue to cover up the holes in his trousers and then painted them. It, <laughs> it's it's David Lynch just being David Lynch. Marvellous. But that's not my neat thing. That's just a neat thing. My neat thing. Now, you've got about 15 days left in order to claim this, but a Humble Bundle, who I've mentioned a few times. You have indeed. They have at the moment a Become a Filmmaker book deal. And it's um, some digital books for screenwriting, um, independent film distribution, how to engineer sound for digital film, film and video production in the cloud, how to use like workflows and best practices, audio post-production for film and video. There, that small group of books, £1. Wow. It's £6.50. And you also get the Editor's Toolkit, Location audio simplified um, to give you a guide to how to get the best audio in outdoor settings. Filmmaking um, toolkit books, independent filmmaking um, guides, compositing visual effects guides, strategic producing guides, video shooting guides. And then for just £12, you also get shooting on location logistics books, indie film producing books, single camera video production, make your own movie, Low to, low to no budget filmmaking books, compositing visual effects books, preparing for takeoff and sound to film and te television. It's a full all encompassing for £12 book thing for anyone who's thinking, I want to get into making films or I want to do screenwriting, but I don't know where to start. How do you start? Have I got the skill set to do this? What do I need? £12 and you're going to get all the initial guides to help you try to get your iPhone 
make a little film, get it out there. Fantastic. That sounds great. That sounds. Uh, it's sounds a great. Bit, I mean, it's the fact that it, I mean they've done similar things like this before, where they've just focused on one aspect of filmmaking. But this is like an all-encompassing from concept to creation to distribution, and books that are covering every step of the chain. So whatever part of the filmmaking industry you think, yeah, I play about with sound on my computer a lot, and I do this and I do that. Could I be a sound engineer for the film? There's two books on that in here. Yeah, so it's every aspect of the the system. If you want to get with into the film creation system, Fantastic. why not see how how much of your skill set you can put to it and just pick up this book? That's brilliant. Uh, my neat thing this week. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Bernardin. He's a um, he's a writer and producer. Uh, he wrote on Castle Rock. Um, he presents or co-presents uh, Fat Man Beyond with Kevin Smith, uh, the podcast. Um, yeah. So he's been taking advantage of, of, of being socially distanced over the last uh, last few weeks in the States. Uh, and during the pandemic, he came up with this very neat idea. Um, take fan favorite genre stars who are stuck at home, who may as well be out there performing um, and, he, and, and come out and perform uh, for a worthy cause. So he's come up with something called the Plague Nerdologues. So takes um, housebound stars and give them famous TV and film monologues and perform them for charity. So you can go to the web- website uh, and you'll be able to pick famous names, and they will um, they basically uh, uh, recite famous monologues from from particular genre movies, but but from from across lots and lots of famous films. Uh, it's it's. It's one of those where you can go on and you can donate as much as you as you like. There's 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 no limit as it's entirely up to you, which I think is is a great way because I think charity does begin at home and that's it's a it's a great way to do it. It's it's pretty star studded and you'll recognise lots and lots of uh, 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 contributing actors from from especially from from genre. He's just kicked off the yeah. second season, um, so. Uh, after the widespread uh, uh, anti-racism movement in in the wake of the killing of uh, George Floyd, the Nerdlog's second showing is set to benefit Black Lives Matter. If you're interested in going along and seeing famous names, people like Kevin Smith, Phil Lamar, Rob Benedict, to name just a few, uh, delivering um, fantastic monologues from some of your favorite films, whether it's The Matrix, whether it's Star Wars, whether it's Dune, which Bernardi does himself, it's a worthy cause. And it's and it's full of geekdom. It's it's it's, it's hearts and geekdom. So all you have to do, if you're interested, is go to the the Plague Nerdologues website uh, and see the available monologues with new ones being added all the time. Um, this next one uh, kicked off in June. It's it's a worthy cause, and it's a lot of fun. And you'll recognise lots and lots of people like Kevin Smith, like Grant Gustin who plays the Flash, like Tracy Thomas, um, Will Forte. The names go on. Brilliant, a worthy cause, and and just a great simple idea, and something that, that you know I've been kind of right my brains, just wondering what we could do uh, while we're still in lockdown before the cinemas open. It might be something that'll, that'll influence us. Fantastic! I've just bookmarked that, so I will uh, get onto that. Um, and that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll be back very very soon. Um, anything planned, Andy, or you're still enjoying lockdown madness? A couple of days of work. Um, before being locked down again for another few weeks. We've just got to, with the delays in reopening the cinema, we've just got to go in and sort a few odds and ends out over the next couple of days. And then it's back to back to normal where I've been, you know, I've been continuing with 
additional content on website, on Twitter, and also on our YouTube channel. Yeah, we've got big things afoot, and we'll hope to be sharing those really soon. But for now, one thing about living in Santa Carla, I can never stomach all the damn vampires. Bye.